Book three, sections five through nine of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Politics by Aristotle. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book three, sections five through nine. Five. There still remains one more question about the citizen. Is he only a true citizen who has a share of office, or is the mechanic to be included? If they who hold no office are to be deemed citizens, not every citizen can have this virtue of ruling and obeying, for this man is a citizen. And if none of the lower class are citizens, in which part of the state are they to be placed? For they are not resident aliens, and they are not foreigners." May we not reply that as far as this objection goes there is no more absurdity in excluding them than in excluding slaves and freedmen from any of the above-mentioned classes? It must be admitted that we cannot consider all those to be citizens who are necessary to the existence of the state. For example, children are not citizen equally with grown-up men, who are citizens absolutely, but children, not being grown-up, are only citizens on a certain assumption. Nay, in ancient times, and among some nations, the artisan class were slaves or foreigners, and therefore the majority of them are so now. The best form of state will not admit them to citizenship, but if they are admitted, then our definition of the virtue of a citizen will not apply to every citizen, nor to every free man as such, but only to those who are freed from necessary services. The necessary people are either slaves who minister to the wants of individuals, or mechanics and laborers who are the servants of the community. These reflections, carried a little further, will explain their position, and, indeed, what has been said already is of itself, when understood, explanation enough. Since there are many forms of government, there must be many varieties of citizen, and especially of citizens who are subjects, so that under some governments the mechanic and the laborer will be citizens, but not in others as, for example, in aristocracy, or the so-called government of the best, if there be such an one, in which honors are given according to virtue and merit, for no man can practice virtue who is living the life of a mechanic or laborer. In oligarchies the qualification for office is high, and therefore no laborer can ever be a citizen, but a mechanic may, for an actual majority of them, are rich." At Thebes there was a law that no man could hold office who had not retired from business for ten years. But in many states the law goes to the length of admitting aliens, for in some democracies a man is a citizen, though his mother only be a citizen, and a similar principle is applied to illegitimate children. The law is relaxed when there is a dearth of population. But when the number of citizens increases, first the children of a male or a female slave are excluded, then those whose mothers only are citizens, and at last the right of citizenship is confined to those whose fathers and mothers are both citizens. Hence, as is evident, there are different kinds of citizens, and he is a citizen in the highest sense who shares in the honors of the state. Compare Homer's words, like some dishonored stranger, he who is excluded from the honors of the state is no better than an alien. But when his exclusion is concealed, then the object is that the privileged class may deceive their fellow inhabitants. As to the question whether the virtue of the good man is the same as that of the good citizen, the considerations already adduced prove that in some states the good man and the good citizen are the same, 
and in others different. When they are the same, it is not every citizen who is a good man, but only the statesmen and those who have or may have, alone or in conjunction with others, the conduct of public affairs. 6. Having determined these questions, we have next to consider whether there is only one form of government, or many, and, if many, what they are, and how many, and what are the differences between them. A constitution is the arrangement of magistracies in a state, especially of the highest of all. The government is everywhere sovereign in the state, and the constitution is in fact the government. For example, in democracies the people are supreme, but in oligarchies the few, and therefore we say that these two forms of government are also different, and so in other cases. First, let us consider what is the purpose of a state, and how many forms of government there are, by which human society is regulated. We have already said that in the first part of this treatise, when discussing household management and the rule of a master, that man is by nature a political animal. And, therefore, men, even when they do not require one another's help, desire to live together, not but that they are also brought together by their common interests in proportion, as they severally attain to any measure of well-being. This is certainly the chief end, both of individuals and of states. And also, for the sake of mere life, in which there is possibly some noble element, so long as the evils of existence do not greatly overbalance the good, mankind meet together and maintain the political community and we see that men cling to life even at the cost of enduring great misfortune, seeming to find in life a natural sweetness and happiness. There is no difficulty in distinguishing the various kinds of authority. They have been defined already in discussions outside the school. The rule of a master, although the slave by nature and the master by nature have in reality the same interests, is nevertheless exercised primarily with a view to the interests of the master, but accidentally considers the slave, since, if the slave perish, the rule of the master perishes with him. On the other hand, the government of a wife and children, and of a household, which we have called household management, is exercised in the first instance for the good of the governed, or for the common good of both parties, but essentially for the good of the governed, as we see to be the case in medicine, gymnastic, and the arts in general, which are only accidentally concerned with the good of the artists themselves. For there is no reason why the trainer may not sometimes practice gymnastics, and the helmsman is always one of the crew. The trainer or the helmsman considers the good of those committed to his care. But, when he is one of the persons taken care of, he accidentally participates in the advantage, for the helmsman is also a sailor, and the trainer becomes one of those in training. And so in politics. When the state is framed upon the principle of equality and likeness, the citizens think that they ought to hold office by turns. Formerly, as is natural, every one would take his turn of service, and then again somebody else would look after his interest, just as he, while in office, had looked after theirs. But nowadays, for the sake of the advantage which is to be gained from the public revenues and from office, men want to be always in office. One might imagine that the rulers, being sickly, were only kept in health while they continued in office, in that case we may be sure that they would be hunting after places. The conclusion is evident, that governments which have a regard to the common interest are constituted in accordance with strict principles of justice, and are therefore true forms, but those which regard only the interest of the rulers 
are all defective and perverted forms, for they are despotic, whereas a state is a community of free men. 7. Having determined these points, we have next to consider how many forms of government there are, and what they are, and in the first place what are the true forms, for when they are determined the perversions of them will at once be apparent. The words constitution and government have the same meaning, and the government, which is the supreme authority in states, must be in the hands of one, or of a few, or of the many. The true forms of government, therefore, are those in which the one, or the few, or the many govern with a view to the common interest, but governments which rule with a view to the private interest, whether of the one, or of the few, or of the many, are perversions. For the members of a state, if they are truly citizens, ought to participate in its advantages. Of forms of government in which one rules, we call that which regards the common interests, kingship, or royalty, that in which more than one, but not many, rule, aristocracy, and it is so called, either because the rulers are the best men, or because they have at heart the best interests of the state and of the citizens. But when the citizens at large administer the state for the common interest, the government is called by the generic name, a constitution. And there is a reason for this use of language. One man or a few may excel in virtue, but as the number increases it becomes more difficult for them to attain perfection in every kind of virtue, though they may in military virtue, for this is found in the masses. Hence in a constitutional government the fighting men have the supreme power, and those who possess arms are the citizens. Of the above-mentioned forms the perversions are as follows, of royalty, tyranny, of aristocracy, oligarchy, of constitutional government, democracy. For a tyranny is a kind of monarchy which has in view the interests of the monarch only. Oligarchy has in view the interests of the wealthy, democracy of the needy, none of them the common good of all. 8. But there are difficulties about these forms of government, and it will therefore be necessary to state a little more at length the nature of each. For he who would make a philosophical study of the various sciences, and does not regard practice only, ought not to overlook or omit anything, but to set forth the truth in every particular. Tyranny, as I was saying, is monarchy exercising the rule of a master over the political society. Oligarchy is when men of property have the government in their hands, democracy the opposite, when the indigent, and not the men of property, are the rulers. And here arises the first of our difficulties, and it relates to the distinction drawn. For democracy is said to be the government of the many. But what if the many are men of property, and have the power in their hands? In like manner oligarchy is said to be the government of the few. But what if the poor are fewer than the rich, and have the power in their hands, because they are the stronger? In these cases the distinction which we have drawn between these different forms of government would no longer hold good. Suppose once more that we add wealth to the few and poverty to the many, and name the governments accordingly. An oligarchy is said to be that in which the few and the wealthy, and a democracy that in which the many and the poor are the rulers. There will still be a difficulty. For, if the only forms of government are the ones already mentioned, how shall we describe those other governments also just mentioned by us, in which the rich are the more numerous and the poor are the fewer, and both govern in their respective states. The argument seems to show that, 
whether in oligarchies or in democracies, the number of the governing body, whether the greater number, as in a democracy, or the smaller number, as in an oligarchy, is an accident due to the fact that the rich everywhere are few, and the poor numerous. But if so, there is a misapprehension of the causes of the difference between them. For the real difference between democracy and oligarchy is poverty and wealth. Wherever men rule by reason of their wealth, whether they be few or many, that is an oligarchy, and where the poor rule, that is a democracy. But as a fact the rich are few and the poor many, for few are well-to-do, whereas freedom is enjoyed by all, and wealth and freedom are the grounds on which the oligarchical and democratical parties respectively claim power in the state. 9. Let us begin by considering the common definitions of oligarchy and democracy, and what is justice oligarchical and democratical. For all men cling to justice of some kind, but their conceptions are imperfect, and they do not express the whole idea. For example, Justice is thought by them to be, and is, equality. Equality not, however, for every one, but only for equals. And equality is thought to be, and is, justice. Neither is this for all, but only for unequals. When the persons are omitted, then men judge erroneously. The reason is that they are passing judgment on themselves, and most people are bad judges in their own case. And whereas justice implies a relation to persons as well as to things, and a just distribution, as I have already said in the ethics, implies the same ratio between the persons and between the things. They agree about the equality of the things, but dispute about the equality of the persons, chiefly for the reason which I have just given, because they are bad judges in their own affairs, and secondly, because both the parties to the argument are speaking of a limited and partial justice, but imagine themselves to be speaking of absolute justice. For the one party, if they are unequal in one respect, for example wealth, consider themselves to be unequal in all, and the other party, if they are equal in one respect, for example free birth, consider themselves to be equal in all. But they leave out the capital point. For if men met and associated out of regard to wealth only, their share in the state would be proportioned to their property, and the oligarchical doctrine would seem to carry the day. It would not be just that he who paid one mina should have the same share of a hundred minae, whether of the principal or of the profits, as he who paid the remaining ninety-nine. But a state exists for the sake of a good life, and not for the sake of life only. If life only were the object, slaves and brute animals might form a state, but they cannot, for they have no share in happiness or in a life of free choice." nor does a state exist for the sake of alliance and security from injustice, nor yet for the sake of exchange and mutual intercourse, for then the Tyrrhenians and the Carthaginians, and all who have commercial treaties with one another, would be the citizens of one state. True, they have agreements about imports, and engagements that they will do no wrong to one another, and written articles of alliance. But there are no magistrates common to the contracting parties who will enforce their engagements, different states have each their own magistracies. Nor does one state take care that the citizens of the other are such as they ought to be, nor see that those who come under the terms of the treaty do no wrong or wickedness at all, but only that they do no injustice to one another. Whereas those who care for good government take into consideration virtue and vice in states. Whence it may be further inferred that virtue must be the care of a state which is truly so called, 
and not merely enjoys the name. For without this end the community becomes a mere alliance, which differs only in place from alliances of which the members live apart, and law is only a convention, a surety to one another of justice, as the sophist Lycophron says, and has no real power to make the citizens. This is obvious, for suppose distinct places, such as Corinth and Megara, to be brought together so that their walls touched, still they would not be one city, not even if the citizens had the right to intermarry, which is one of the rights peculiarly characteristic of states. Again, if men dwelt at a distance from one another, but not so far off as to have no intercourse, and there were laws among them that they should not wrong each other in their exchanges, neither would this be a state. Let us suppose that one man is a carpenter, another a husbandman, another a shoemaker, and so on, and that their number is ten thousand. Nevertheless, if they have nothing in common but exchange, alliance, and the like, that would not constitute a state. Why is this? Surely not because they are at a distance from one another, for even supposing that such a community were to meet in one place, but that each man had a house of his own, which was in a manner his state, that they made alliance with one another, but only against evil-doers. Still, an accurate thinker would not deem this to be a state, if their intercourse with one another was of the same character, after, as before their union. It is clear, then, that a state is not a mere society, having a common place, established for the prevention of mutual crime, and for the sake of exchange. These are the conditions without which a state cannot exist, but all of them together do not constitute a state which is a community of families and aggregations of families in well-being, for the sake of a perfect and self-sufficing life. Such community can only be established among those who live in the same place and intermarry. Hence arise in cities family connections, brotherhoods, common sacrifices, amusements, which draw men together. But these are created by friendship, for the will to live together is friendship. The end of the state is the good life, and these are the means toward it and the state is the union of families and villages in a perfect and self-sufficing life, by which we mean a happy and honorable life. Our conclusion, then, is that political society exists for the sake of noble actions, and not of mere companionship. Hence they who contribute most to such a society have a greater share in it than those who have the same or a greater freedom or nobility of birth, but are inferior to them in political value or than those who exceed them in wealth, but are surpassed by them in virtue. From what has been said it will be clearly seen that all the partisans of different forms of government speak of a part of justice only. End of Book 3, Sections 5 through 9